This episode is brought to you in part by B&H Publishing Group. Sam Alberry's new kids' book, God's Go-Togethers, provides a helpful foundation for explaining why God made men and women as a special pair to complement each other in marriage and beyond. Learn more at godsgotogethers.com. Solidarity looks a lot like humility. In fact, I would venture a guess that humility might be the only path you can take if you really want to embody solidarity. It really can't be trying to come in and tell people how you can help them, because the truth is you probably can help make an impact. But if you are afraid to wait to offer your services until you've learned about the people that should be leading, then you've forgotten that God is in control and he sees your heart. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Calling. My name is Richard Clark. I'm the online managing editor for Christianity Today. And I'm the host of this podcast. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Michelle Higgins. She is the Director of Worship and Outreach at South City Church in St. Louis. She's also the Director of Faith and Justice at faithforjustice.com. I was really happy to talk to her and really happy to have this interview to run today because um, I feel like it, it hits on a few things that I've been thinking about lately, especially in sort of the wake of a really divisive election, uh, one in which a lot of people didn't see eye to eye. And I think a lot of us are starting to feel um, like we don't know one another or like we don't know how to think about things. And I think one of the things that I'm really realizing is that that's okay. Um, at least it's okay not to know what to think about things. And it's probably okay not to know everything about one another and how we think. One of the things I'm realizing is that we all have sort of different roles that we play and we have um, different things that we're passionate about. And yes, we should all care about, you know, abortion. We should all care about racial hatred and racial bias and racism. We should care about those things, but I think different people care about them to different degrees for different reasons. We should be challenged by those things. We should challenge one another and we should be patient. We should show grace to one another. But beyond all of the shoulds. I think the thing I wanted to do today was to hear from uh, Michelle Higgins, who is someone who is very much sort of walking the walk. She's someone who is passionate about racial justice, someone who is able to talk about it in a way that I think if you're not passionate about racial justice, you will understand her passion um, and you will be able to get behind it. You will be able to sort of, I think if you listen, um, assent to most, if not all, of what she's saying. And I found it really refreshing. I think she's a patient person. I think she's full of grace for the hearer, which is important. And more than anything, I, I was really encouraged by sort of her social media presence, which is largely like a bunch of posts about her, what she's doing locally. Um, she uses it largely to talk about um, her work in St. Louis in sort of ways that, so there was one in which she was asking for some supplies for a family nearby. That that sort of thing always always encourages me because it's not like the best way to inspire a following, but it is a good way to help people around you. And that was inspiring to me. In our current moment, I've become incredibly grateful that this is what this podcast is. It's, it's essentially just an opportunity to listen to people 
who are vastly different from one another, and in many cases, vastly different than me. The most uncomfortable situations I put myself in often turn out to be the most challenging and gratifying and enlightening. We actually have a new issue of CT out. I just got it in the mail today. It is uh, the December issue, a really great cover package on opioid addiction and how good church people become addicts. I had the pleasure of being the managing editor for this issue in the absence of Caitlin Beatty, um, who has left us uh, a couple months ago. There's a great cover package, as I said, and there's a great piece about the most uncomfortable Christmas verse out there. She will be saved by childbearing. Remember that one? Normally, I would tell you about a special deal for podcast listeners. We have an even better deal for everyone this week. It's our Black Friday deal. If you go to ChristianityToday.com and click one of those banners, we're advertising it all over the website. Just click on our Black Friday deal and you'll get the 10 issues for $10 plus a bunch of cool digital downloads. Really great stuff in there. I would definitely suggest you check it out. Anyway, here's my interview with Michelle Higgins. St. Louis. That's my hometown. Born and raised. Oh man, I love St. Louis so much. I love it. All with grime and what do you dirt. Love and That's what you love about the yeah, grime and dirt? St. Louis is real. Yeah. You know, there's like a lot of really great people there. It's like the best part of the Southern Midwest. It's okay. like the South and the Midwest mixed together. I can't decide if that sounds great or not. Or awful. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You kind of have to be from there. It's pretty much 50-50. 50% of the people who were born and raised in St. Louis hated it. Uh-huh. And the rest of us are like, oh, this is my town. I'm really I'm really curious. <laughs> what is what is what are the things from the South and what are the things from the Midwest that are in that area? Okay, that's a good question. So we have awesome barbecue, incredible barbecue, some of the best blues that's like based pretty much in Delta Blues. And then we also have a lot of culture that concentrates, like arts and culture that concentrate on international things. So we have a really proud Latino population. We have a really proud Bosnian population. And they're free to move about in terms of building businesses and having festivals. So there's a little bit of a twinge of a that melting pot feel that you get in bigger cities in the Midwest. Um, But yeah, St. Louis is like still, you show up, you want some barbecue, we got it. You show up, you need some Dixie or Delta Blues, we got both. Yeah, barbecue is a solid thing to take from the South. It's a hardcore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But we also have fish and spaghetti. Cool. Which is really quirky and a Midwest thing. We're, We're still pretty segregated in terms of neighborhoods. And so I think part of... Me loving the city is loving it back to life because so many people have despised it to death. And so one of the reasons that I stay, you know, there's a lot of African-Americans, especially who get their degrees, who make it big or they find out there's a job in a bigger city, a better city. I'm not going to act like we're number one. Mm -hmm. This is in my heart. Mm -hmm. Um, And we leave. There's not a lot of black political power or Mm. black educational power. And the only way to change that is for people of color to decide to stay and to turn it around. But white people don't leave? You know, the interesting thing about St. Louis is the majority population is almost half and half. Okay. However, that's just the working population. In the city, the majority is black folks. In the county, it's white folks. So even though I would say, yeah, white, white people leave the city, 
they're only moving about 10 to 15 minutes away into a very, um, a very just a, a really white neighborhood. And generally, power, um, as divided on racial lines, is how poverty is mm-hmm. pretty much spread around the city as well. So race and poverty become two sides of a single coin. And it, that makes it harder to dismantle any type of cultural supremacy because you have to work even harder to try to convince people that the majority of what they see does not reflect the whole truth. Yeah. So St. Louis has a lot of its own really distinct problems. Although if you look around the country, most likely they're not unique. Yeah. Wow, we got really deep into it quickly before I even ask the first. I'm so sorry. I have one other (laughs) ridiculous question, kind of ridiculous question to ask. Um, Your Twitter profile says busy but woke and alive. Oh, Um, cool. That's funny you read that. (laughs) Can you explain to our listeners what it means to be woke? Okay. Um, So wokeness is a movement reference, and it describes not a location, um, and it doesn't describe like a... um, how would I put it? It doesn't describe an actual state that your body or your mind is in. So don't think of it as one-to-one to the classic definition. Being woke is a journey to absorbing the whole truth about every situation. So in the United States right now, stay woke or um, get woke and then stay woke is what we attach to movements that are seeking to decriminalize people of color, to decriminalize the existence of people of color. So it's actually been really fun to describe what get woke means mm-hmm. because I I actually ran an event. Do you get that question a lot? Oh, my word. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, man. I thought I was being <laughs> super original, like in a real You're nerdy so, way. It's so cool. It's so cool. Um, I hosted an event called Get Woke, Stay Woke. Okay. And um, because it's kind of a famous movement phrase, but I wanted to have people, you know, get involved and figure out what the slang is. And one of the sponsors was an, an educational institution. So they changed the title on their literature to wake up and then remain awake. So it was. <laughs> That's the best. That's so good. It didn't really work. It doesn't translate. <laughs> That's a, that's amazing. And people were going, do you mean like we shouldn't fall asleep? Like don't rest, don't sleep. We're like, no, it means it's different. So we've had to describe it a lot. It's a journey. Yeah. Wokeness is, it's a journey to basically just saying I'm done being blind or I'm done sleeping on the whole truth about my community. That's good. Okay. So how would you define your calling? What I can do is I can tell you where I know the Lord has placed my identity, how I self-identify is only by God's grace. Um, because what what do I want? What do I really want? I want to be like a Grammy winning, the next, like the female black Lin-Manuel Miranda. Okay. You know, that's like, ooh, if Michelle was in charge. Like you want to watch, write musicals? Yeah, let's go. Let's do, go. Uh, do you write? Like, is that the thing? <laughs> I that... write songs. Okay. I write songs. But Good. no, I, there's, ain't nobody got that much time in their life to write Hamilton. Only that nerd. Like, I think he might be Hamilton with how much he wrote. But I know that the Lord has called me into organizing and into activism. And the cool thing about the job that I'm in now is that I get to do those in my two favorite spaces. And those are the sanctuary and on the street. And that's probably where I will always be in my training in divinity school. The whole time I was like, oh, 
I can't wait to take everything that I'm learning and apply it to worship practices and apply it to evangelism and engagement, public engagement. So I I know that I'm an organizer. And deep down, I know that because I'm so attached to truth telling about not just our own consequences of our actions, but even about our communities, about our history, I think activism is just a part of that. So when people ask me, who are you? I say, I am a worshiper. I grew up in the church and I'm one of those church babies who just, it was always wonderful every time, every time, all the time. I loved church. Really? And we went to church like five days a week for four and a half hours. And you didn't church. have you didn't have a tortured I relationship. Left. Yeah. I don't know. I just the the black church mothered me just as much as my own mother did. And whew, I just I never left. And so I know that who I am, the thing that has never changed about me is that I'm a worshiper. I love the Lord and I always will. And so I think the most interesting thing about knowing that as the core of my identity is that I have got to get everybody else that I know up in this house. Cause y'all don't know how good the food is up in this house. You got to come, please. <laughs> yeah. I mean, literally and figuratively. And so that makes me want to organize people of faith and people who don't ascribe to any faith to get together. So what tradition of church did you go? So in? I'm from the Pentecostal tradition. Okay. And the roots is deep. Uh-huh. Matter of fact, right now, <laughs> right now I work in a ninety percent white church uh-huh. and we sing Pentecostal worship songs every Sunday and the people are like oh my goodness this is amazing and what do you do in that church so I I am the worship director and I'm the outreach director it's called South City Church and it's really it's only a couple blocks from one of the most intense areas during the Ferguson and St. Louis uprisings a couple years ago so what we've discovered is that the black-white dynamic in St. Louis has actually been a space for people to connect and to talk about church unity because the world outside of the church is wanting answers for how in the world can unity happen when a white police officer in our neighborhood, a little bit different from the Michael Brown story, in our neighborhood, a young boy was actually gunned down and killed by an off-duty police officer who was two and a half miles from where he was working as a security guard. And so it was it's just a striking story. Why was this kid pursued? Why did this guy just get mad because a kid was running through an alley and he followed him and killed him? And we didn't, I mean, people in our community were like, we are never going to get over this. But when they look at a church just a few blocks away that has a black pastor, my dad is who I work for, has a black worship leader, has a gospel choir, and we're singing songs and we're crying out for justice. So I would lead Sunday morning worship and then I would actually take Anyone who wanted to come, we didn't pressure anybody. Anyone who wanted to come, I would take them to shut down the streets and go cry out for justice and honestly for reconciliation. And we ended up being a witness to people saying, you know what, this is the hardest thing some of these people have ever done. But if we do it together, chances are we're going to recover together. And worship is the only thing that could prepare me to be an activist. You're a worship leader. You're an activist uh, organizer. And those things to you are pretty similar. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I have only, I have only what the Lord has given. That's all I have. And in terms of whether it's a talent or whether it's something that I wanted to study and be skilled at, 
all of it is still a gift. And you know, the fascinating thing about worship is it's one of the most heated discussions in multi-ethnic church planting. I don't know if you heard about this. The worship wars. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's a different kind of worship wars, right? Like exactly. it's a totally different, like back, it's so, exactly. f- oh my gosh, we were having <laughs> the dumbest conversations back in the day, like oh, yeah. in white churches about whether we Guitars. should do contemporary or have an organ. Yes. Who cares? I know. It anyway. seems so far away for so many people now, and yet there are people still fighting over it. But then you get into the multi-ethnic church planting, the really growing movement to say, whoa, did God tell us about Revelation so that we could attempt to do that now? Is Maybe? Is that why he gave it to us? Well, he gave it to us for all sorts of reasons, but... Giving us that picture certainly informs us that there will not be a single represented human culture or nation. There just won't be. That God's new earth means we are all equal and we are all distinct. Oh my goodness, that's the most that's the best news for the church. And yet it's the weirdest, most awkward news for worship leaders. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> Yeah. And so in justice movements, it's very much similar, right? I mean, think think about how the pro-life and the Black Lives Matter movement, if the church would umbrella both of them, if the church would umbrella activists and ambassadors from both of those movements, how rich our movement for the sanctity of life could be. If the church umbrellaed adoption movements as well as social work and basically uh, mental health and therapy and orphan care movements if we became the space where everyone's distinct callings and skills were welcome, I, I think maybe we would participate in the renewal of the earth even on this side of kingdom come. So there's a big opportunity for us to look at the way that we, the way in which we argue over the thing that is closest to our hearts. Humans and the manner in which they express praise is so personal. Humans and the manner in which they ex- they express justice is so personal. Flourishing, right? Human flourishing. Those who have an issue with being addicted to greed or money. Oh, d- don't tell them that human flourishing involves giving so much of what they have to those who don't have it. Oh, that that's a problem. Those who love and enjoy, like me, clapping on the two and the four, gotta have a tambourine on it. Don't tell me that I have to sing sad songs and lament from now on. Oh my goodness, no. But what if the call to serve God faithfully actually involves giving up or giving over all of our preferences and saying, Lord, your heart is all that I desire. And I I really, I really believe that both worship and outreach are a picture of relinquishing power and realizing that our systemic preference goes so much deeper inside the church and has a way deeper impact on church unity and our unity, what the Lord told us. The world will see how you love one another, and that will be your testimony to them. If we can't figure out how to worship together, we will never, ever have a testimony that reaches out to those who are watching us battle it out in the sanctuary. Especially the Christian church, especially 
just to let my own family know this is true of us, Reformed Christians. Uh, we have what I believe is the most robust interpretation of Scripture. And so we think that we're the rightest and the brightest. But sadly, we also have to admit that we're the whitest. And we need to be humble about that. In, in a lot of Reformed churches, there's no space for any other cultural expression of worship to be dignified. Um, there's space for it to be maybe tokenized or to be um, performed, but there's no space for cultural expressions outside of mostly English speaking, but obviously there are some German and other Western European cultures. Um, but mostly the idea is that if it's outside of a particular canon, as in a collection of songs, collection of habits, then the church is not functioning properly if we remove those habits or if we attempt to diversify those habits. And I, and I think that's one of the biggest places that most reformed denominations, and I'm in one, uh, that's one of the biggest places we have to show humility. We have that to can, begin. I, that can happen in a number of sort of tribal Oh, absolutely. Groups, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you think about minority groups, however, and we're so accustomed to code switching that um, on any given Sunday, especially in a black church, uh-huh. two out of the 12 songs that they do are written by black people. That's fascinating. You know? Yeah. I mean, why? Because yeah, I remember coming to Legacy here where we are now, mm-hmm. the Legacy Conference last year, and going like, I know all these songs. I really didn't expect to know all these songs. Right, exactly. But I know all these songs. Exactly. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Because what? Minority culture, the first thing we do is is we go, well, the the trade language, that's all we know, especially for um, people like, let's say, indigenous tribes in South America, who now all they know hundreds of years down the road is the language of Spanish. People who are descended from folks who were stolen in the Atlantic, in the, yeah, transatlantic slave trade, all we know is the English language. And matter of fact, the black church was born from segregation and so all they had was the hymn books that there was no way a black author was going to get in that hymnal so we took what we already had and so we actually have the space to preach to to love on and to welcome those who are in the majority culture over who have really been over us in a lot of ways for so many years we have the space to say we're actually doing what you're doing if only we could do it together but what it takes is an admission from most of the time, it's our white brothers and sisters who, who have to admit that, oh, our expressions of worship are received as a sweet aroma by the same God. Killing the hostility between us most likely would only enrich both of our experiences. What in the world is whiteness in the U.S.? Maybe if we began to define it as something other than not black, we might actually begin to discover what it is. And perhaps being together is actually going to enrich the cultural experience of most white people in the States. Being together is actually going to enrich the cultural experience of being Asian American, specifically Korean or Chinese. It's going to enrich that because you'll have people surrounding you going, whoa, that's different or whoa, that's similar. It enriches you. And our disunity, our disharmony is really killing our witness. What's the hardest thing some of these people have ever done? Um, actually leaving a sanctuary and coming out and saying, I'm a white person who was raised to believe that police can't do anything wrong. And I'm out here saying that there's a police officer in our city who Street did activism, something wrong. basically. Yeah. yeah. And then on the flip side, some of the black folks in our congregation um, were feeling 
I've been raised to never trust police, not once, not ever. And yet I'm going to go out here and I'm going to look the police in the eyes. Because when we shut down, we called the police and told them we're going to block streets as a active public demonstration. And they would come out and we would have to be ready to engage with officers and say, we are simply demonstrating and we, we really hope that you all can respect our right to do so. And I would tell a lot of our African-American members, we would basically say, you have to be ready to look cops in the eye and say to them, I trust that when you tell me you respect my rights, I trust that you're telling the truth. And that that's unheard of in a lot of black communities, especially urban black communities. We just don't trust cops. So it was the hardest thing for those people to do on both sides, the the black and white. And that's a binary that we don't try to stay in all the time. The black and white binary. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in terms of our congregation, we have a pretty broad Hispanic ministries outreach as well. But sometimes when you're dealing with especially some of our people who are currently illegal, quote unquote, I hate applying that term to humans, um, but who don't have a status of legal um, it, it's so much easier to do a lot of our work behind the scenes, not publicly. Mm-hmm. So our church does a lot more public justice along the the lines of decriminalizing and dignifying black lives. That's interesting. So you're saying because of the just the nature of the injustices is yes. the way to handle them. Every The way you work a different injustice has so much more to do with what exactly you want to change. What do I want to change? Because I've heard, a, I mean, the people... People, I don't know if complain is the right word. They mm-hmm. would point out sure, that, sure. you know, there are other injustices, injustices. besides the black and yes. white issues. Yes. I don't know if they're complaining or not, but like that's, that's one thing go, that's often why said. aren't they as big? Why, right. aren't, why isn't that you, as big do, a deal? Does that matter to you? Yeah. So I, I affirm Black Lives Matter and I hear, well, doesn't, um, don't Latino lives matter? Don't Hispanic lives matter? And I say, absolutely. But where I lead is only where I have the right to the story. And so the Hispanic Lives Matter activists in St. Louis, especially in our city, that's pretty much overrun with deception and people taking back promises to DACA students, especially if you read up on political and educational news. Um, we've got a lot of people in our con- in our country who are sold basically a bill of lies. And the only way to turn those things around is to go directly to protest via legislation and actually protest inside the classroom, especially for DACA students who've been utterly mistreated in the state of Missouri. And so a lot of those activists are working in classrooms with legislators in our state capitol, in the universities, and they are leading. And I completely support them. But what happens and the things that change normally are are happening behind closed doors. Michael Brown was killed in the street. And he laid in the street for four and a half hours and his blood streamed down into spaces where little children play. His blood streamed down for four and a half hours as four-year-olds and eight-year-olds and, Lord, 14-year-olds were walking around. It was the weekend before school started again. And parents were going, what am I going to say to my kids? And so a community was impacted by the public shaming of blackness as a whole. A community was impacted by the difficulty of dealing with police, and then not four days after he was killed, a community was impacted health-wise, 
by actual tear gas canisters being just thrown and cannoned from SWAT tanks. Ferguson, Missouri is, as a whole, smaller than Chicago's suburbs. I mean, it's smaller than the smallest burb in this area. And they had tanks, cannons, rubber bullets that actually broke open people's skin. I mean, it was disturbing. So the trauma brought upon these communities is something that really can only be explained, can only be demanded and brought to justice in the public eye. It was so public that what we want to shift and change, we have to do in the public. I think it's also important that I point out St. Louis is a place that has a lot of violence that people are dealing with day to day, right? So one of the things you just mentioned was, aren't there other injustices? Our murder rate is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And that's our civilian to civilian murder rate. And I think it's really important that we point out that church unity has a deep impact on both those intra-community issues as well as the civilian to law enforcement relationship issues as well. If we can end mistrust between police and protesters and then police and civilians, then we might actually be be able to turn something around in terms of civilian on civilian crime too. You said you only engage in stories you have a, yeah. a right to. Yeah. How do you determine what those stories are? Like, what, flesh that out for me a little yeah, bit. Yeah, that's a great question. Because I think like a lot of our listeners are trying to figure out what should I be engaged okay, in. Okay, right, right, right. So how how I engage really depends on my experience. And so, for instance, I'll just take my Asian American brothers and sisters who really want to. So many of them want to know how to embody solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement, or they want to know how to embody solidarity with um, the really specifically South American immigrants. Well, the first thing that all of us have to do is to listen and learn. Solidarity looks a lot like humility. In fact, I would venture a guess that humility might be the only path you can take if you really want to embody solidarity. It really can't be trying to come in and tell people how you can help them, because the truth is you probably can help make an impact, do something that furthers a righteous cause. But if you are afraid to wait to offer your services until you've learned about the people that should be leading, then you've forgotten that God is in control and he sees your heart that's willing to come in and be a part. And so I think that quietness is how people who don't have an exact experience in whatever cultural or even a socioeconomic movement that's going on, anybody who does not have a lived experience where they have experienced the injustice that is being challenged, then they are the ones that must come in and first learn. They must come in and first befriend. They must come in and first show themselves as a participant before they can be allowed or expected to lead in any way. I think it's important for me to point out that in the Black Lives Matter movement, I'm an African-American woman who grew up in all brackets of socioeconomic status. I mean, my parents were poor and then officer in the army. My dad wasn't, then he got out to go to seminary. 
poor during that time. <laughs> and then he was an officer in the army again. Uh-huh. And then I left home and God knows I was poor after college. So I've been all over the place. But what I haven't experienced is training in nonviolent de-escalation. So despite the fact that I've been pulled over, I've been abused and actually assaulted by people for reasons that just because I'm a black woman, I know that I've experienced injustice because I am a black woman. But what I haven't done ever is lead people in nonviolent de-escalation and have never led people in political engagement. This is back in 2014. Because that is where I needed to grow, that is the path I decided to take. And I opted to only speak when I could answer in a way that I had already truly experienced. And in the rest of the time, I was a listening learner, just like anybody else who had never been trained. So how can people get involved? Seriously, I mean, it's not cheap to read. It's not cheap to read and to study and to listen to podcasts, I think people need to stop beating themselves up for doing a lot of learning before they want to go out and engage in person. I think you should read up as much as you can before you go. Do you feel like when you started all of this, you, f- you did struggle with the pride? Oh, absolutely. Oh, you know, that's so that's step one yeah. of getting woke is, is, re- is remembering you need ju- you have just as many needs as all the people uh-huh. that you're looking down on. OK. Right. OK. So what's the first thing that I realized when I woke up, which wasn't in 2014? I mean, I, I my friends have always called me the radical. So <laughs> I've had, you know, I've had to struggle <laughs> through this. Um, the first thing I thought is, look at this church. We're so far behind. Uh-huh. We think we're ahead because ain't nobody behind us. Right. The truth is we're dead last. You know, what What I just said in that phrase is, is actually true. But should I be proud about it? Does that mean I should separate myself from the people that raised me, that loved me, that cared for me? No, actually, dealing with pride means the first thing that I discover in seeing my community's needs is my failure to address those needs. And so if I know that I am a person who stands under the authority of the Holy Spirit in constant need of his forgiveness and guidance, I can actually be a better leader. Oh, and before that, I can be a better student. Oh, and before that, I can be a better servant of the gospel itself. So yeah, pride is a huge thing that we have to dismantle every day. Every day. I mean, the other, it's just as important as our comfort, right? I have no desire, no desire to be detained in a cell that sm- they, they smell so bad. Like, and I will get nauseated so quickly. I have no desire to be pelted by chemical sprays. And you know what? Let's just back it up. I've never had any desire to be yelled at, to be despised. I've been called the N-word more times I could even count, I, I can't even count anymore how many times people have yelled at me. And this is just, I'm not even talking about protesting. I'm talking about going from the grocery store to my car. Um, I'm just talking about living. I lived in the South for 10 years and you just get called the in People just yell it at you. And I have no desire to go through that. But in order for me to do this thing where I not only preach forgiveness, but I practice it, in order for me to do that, actually have to be ready to forgive the people that wish me the worst. And I I think there's a difference between protecting ourselves from abuse, obviously, and forgiving. You know, there's no way that we want to see 
the people who forgave Dylan Roof, we, we don't want to see him actually released and returned to Bible study, right? So protection from abuse is different from forgiveness, but forgiveness is key still. It is in a place where our hearts no longer sit in the presumption that we are ontologically better, that we are made in a higher order than those who do even the most awful wrongs. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. So you talked about the protests in your area having a lot of like ramifications for the community. Yeah. The way that they were responded to by police. Yet you still seem pretty insistent that protests are like an important thing to do. I'm wondering, especially now, where a protest is like, especially Black Lives Matter matter protests, is like inherently loaded. A lot of people would say unsafe, right? What causes you to think those things are still important to do? How do you weigh those options? I think there's a lot of people asking the question, like, should I protest? Should people protest? Is it is it just too high a cost at this stage when both sides are dying, like, in those situations? You know, um, I, both sides is a bad way of putting it. I know. I was like, but, oh, yeah. sides. Oh, Awful. You know, I know. My bad. American police officers. Right. right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. People are dying exactly. all over the place. For, you yeah. Know. Yeah. Well, you know, everything's loaded. Everything. Everything's loaded. Is loaded. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's really important to note that people who self-identify as minorities in the United States have spent their lives code switching, knowing that any decision we make is, is going to be really loaded. And I think movements that don't bear complexity are movements that don't involve a lot of humans. I think it's really important for us to not attempt to force one another to pursue activism in one way. So yes, I I am going to say that until the specific legislative demands that you see on um, the movementforblacklives.org, for instance, but I think it's m4bl.org, but those, those demands are not being met. And so, and they're reasonable, they're reasonable. And so on the local level, especially in St. Louis, we find that protest actually forces people to finally have a meeting with us. Protest will never be the end. It cannot be the end. I, I really don't want people to think, oh, yeah, I feel like protesting today. I, I wanted to get arrested all those times I've been detained. That was fun. Right. Uh, n- no. Yeah. And I can tell you that the civil rights leaders gone before us had no fun in lockup which lets us know that something they did worked beyond ratifying the Civil Rights Act. They did more work before and after that in the public eye that made that bill 
actually begin to do something in the hearts of people. And protesting, at least in for different, especially, especially local needs that are being raised, protesting informs the public in a way that the television and the newspaper cannot do. It stops you in your regular, everyday, daily rhythms, status quo tracks, and it says, you will not get to your job without hearing the message that people are perishing. You will not get to your brunch. You're not going to make it to breakfast on time. We have got to send you a really important message. People are perishing. The poor are still being punished because they are poor. And I believe that protest has to be something that we continue to do until very important demands are met. Now, what you brought up in terms of the complexity of who is leading and doing the protesting is not so much a reason for Christians to back out as much as it is a reason or one of the best reasons for Christians to engage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It certainly does not mean that you have to go and sit at the feet of the people that you think, oh, I think their message is coming across with, you know, for instance, you hear the this phrase put around, they're so angry. I don't, not everybody's going to hear it that way. I don't actually hear anger. I hear really loud lament. I hear really deeply impacted depression. And depression is loud. And I think a lot of people of color have been psychologically depressed by what's going on and they need to cry out. So I want I want to hear their screams because they've been screaming, we've been screaming how many hundreds of years? It's time for those screams to be heard in the streets again. However, those who are not going to be comfortable and not going to be comfortable enough to cry out should consider beginning their own groups or starting a movement that actually says we're learning from these other movements that have begun and always tell the truth about the fact that if Black Lives Matter wasn't first in this day and age, who else, I mean, was anybody else going to be first? <laughs> we have to answer that question yeah. honestly, right? I'm yeah. totally committed to truth-telling. I believe it's fine to disagree with the specific centering requirements of Black Lives Matter, but I do think that if you are a person who wants to follow Black leadership into the cry for social justice— for the purpose of changing how you live, for the purpose of changing equity, seeing more equity just even in our cities. I mean, look at Chicago. There's nowhere near enough African-Americans who have political power, who have actual income. We, got, we need change to happen. And until and unless the church is going to actually rise up and take everything that we do on the sanctuary and put it out on these streets— we really don't have any business complaining about being concerned over and especially condemning what's happening on the streets. I do think that we need to save space to admit that a lot of churches are doing a lot of good work. I mean, think about violence happening in urban communities, especially impoverished communities, whether it's gangs, whether it's drugs, whether it's race-based, um, whether it's especially it's domestic violence. But Blackness is nationally criminalized, and I don't think we can take one without taking the other. If there's one thing that I believe churches can and should bring to the movement for dignifying black lives, it is, one, the message that we will overcome. There is hope in this, and there's hope in unity. There's hope in unifying with 
white allies, with Latino fellow sufferers, with Native peoples who have been all but ignored, but we can't even find some of the Native Lives Matter movement leaders. So we need to bring that reminder for dignity and unity, but we also need to bring the opportunity to turn our neighborhoods around together for actual solidarity for the spaces that we dominate already as a witness to the larger spaces. If I can get my aldermen to get on board, if I can just get my local council, just my neighborhood council people to get on board, to view racial equity as the only lens through which we create policy, then I'm actually doing some of the demands, not only of the Black Lives Matter movement, but of the Christian church. Isn't that something? We have so much in common, and we're actually letting the way the message is getting out and how loud or what exact words are being used or kind of letting that get in the way of us deciding whether or not we will engage. It doesn't mean I agree with every single thing, but it does mean when you talk, I need to listen. When did you become aware of this calling to both the sanctuary and the streets? So I went to I went to a Christian college and I went to and before that I spent a year or, or a year and a half at a Christian high school. And when I was in high school, I actually worked for an AIDS support organization. So HIV and AIDS sufferers were actually supported like all hours of the morning and the evening. And when I was in high school, I, I worked with this group and they were not affiliated with any particular denomination, but they were Bible-based uh, and faith-rooted. And their activism did not require anyone to sign off on a statement of faith. However, uh, the schools that I attended, the educational institutions that I attended, um, did require some statement of faith, whether, whether it was from a parent or from the student him or herself. And I think that's a really complicated issue. But what it taught me, first of all, was not judging or despising the schools, but it taught me that we have so much to do in terms of inviting people in to God's enormous house, God settling the lonely in homes, God finding the harassed and the oppressed and putting them where? Where? He's not just finding them and healing them and going, all right, take care, champ. You know, (laughs) Jesus is forgiving sins here. And I'm sitting in these institutions, these spaces that say, you need to know this because you are going to someday change the world. How? I mean, by having really good conversations on some level at some point, the gospel is for us to be completely shielded and and full of faith and determination that God's work is work is being worked out even outside of the institutions that we find safe and comfortable. At some point, it I realize it is worship and the practices of the Christian faith that kept me fearless in the face of touching people ridden with a disease that we didn't know much about in the early and mid-90s. I realized at some point I wanted to engage with people who didn't know about Jesus or people who didn't like him because I figured it it must be true that they don't actually know enough about him. And so I, I think I was probably a teenager when I realized everything that I do inside of the sanctuary is meant to keep me, to carry me, to remind me, and Lord help to discipline me. 
<laughs> outside of it. And then, you know, it's really only been in the past 10 to 12 years that I realized I've, I, I was raised that way. My parents are both Pentecostal preachers. Uh, my dad's the only one who practices anymore because we are in that kind of denomination. But when they were preaching as I was growing up, I never, ever saw them turn away people outside of the church. Good Lord, they they wrestled with and dealt with and encouraged and grappled with all kinds of lifestyles that they knew were detrimental to the people that they loved, but they carried people through overcoming different lifestyles that were hurting them. They carried people through the early pieces of coming to Christ as an adult and discipling them and mentoring them. And most of what they did actually readied them to lead people in worship of the Most High. And most of the worship they participated in actually readied them to lead people outside of the sanctuary back in. And so I've always known there's a harmony between our worship and our work, because when we do it for the Lord, it's really all worship anyway. You seem really convinced of the theoretical concept, like the ideas you're talking about. Was there ever a point where you doubted your personal calling in that area? Oh boy, there's so many times. A number of times. What's oh one that gosh. sticks out? Oh my gosh. You know, what's interesting is, I don't know if you can tell this, but I'm 170% extroverted. Mm -hmm. And along with that comes a real need to to be, I don't want to say right about <laughs> it. Affirmed, yeah, loved, okay. and you know, people enjoy me. Oh, everybody, please enjoy me. Yes. Because I'm really dedicated to seeking out and sharing truth in a lot of spaces, I, I like to study the context that I'm headed into. Um, if I go to a particular city and I'm speaking, I'd like to share a piece of a narrative about something I learned about that city, or I like to ask people, hey, do you know about the native tribe that lived on this land before it was taken? You know, it, sometimes it goes over well, sometimes it doesn't. So I started doing that at, um, at an engagement that I had and I was speaking. And there were a few people afterward who basically said, we don't talk about that here. We don't bring it up. And it's so much better when people don't try to just act like they want to come in and stir up trouble. And they basically said that because I brought up the thing that was their town's um, shame, nobody heard me the rest of my speech. And I was like, okay, I'm going to learn from this. First of all, yeah. you know, always double check. Like, what's the thing that people hate most? Maybe I lost some listeners, but also, it's sad that the truth, and I asked, did I say something that, that's not part of the history? Did I, you know, did I miss something? And they said, no, everything you said was true. And that's what hurt the most is that the thing I can't stop doing, I can't stop, I can't not do the truth piece because that's the only thing that's going to lead us from being so proud that we can't confess and repent. I can't cover iniquity. It's against scripture, right? Psalm 32. So that's, I think, what causes me to question. I personally am the wrong person to be in the business of uncovering iniquity. It's not my, I can't do it because it actually impacts my personality. And so the thing that keeps me going is the Lord saying, this is actually really good for you. Because do you know that the 
acclaim and glory and praise of people is not what you're after. Even in seeking forgiveness, even in seeking an apology. Um, one of my dear friends uh, just wrote um, a, a good, it's, it's a sermonic prose, but he wrote it and he said, we don't apologize so that we can feel good or so that the person who's offended can feel better that we know that we did bad. We don't forgive so that we can have weights lifted off. These are these are precious gifts that come as secondary. We apologize, we tell the truth, and we uncover iniquity because faithfulness to God says you will not rest until he sees all, until you have told him all, until you have given him all, and until you have said, I am not the potter, I'm the clay. And that keeps me, that really keeps me going. I, I don't have to seek out or work for people's attention. I have to, have to remember that I am working for a God who sent his son despite the fact that the whole world wanted him dead, you know? If that's how I end up sharing in Christ's suffering by a millionth, then so be it, because I have not suffered at all like the man that I'm suffering for. That said, what has been your biggest struggle? Doing the the dance of truth-telling and reminding people that I strive to operate out of deep abiding love has been my biggest struggle, because the thing that I'm accused of all the time is the thing that hurts the most. I think that happens to everybody, doesn't yes. it? The thing that people yes. think of you is the thing that you're like, oh, that is the furthest away from what I hope is true right, exactly. about me. And that is, oh, you think you know something. And why is that what people say? Because race in the United States is so complex. And the minute that you say to someone, we might have a cultural preference problem here, it's automatic that a lot of the defense comes from the fact that nobody, nobody wants to be accused of cultural preference. Oh, it's the worst. And so one of my biggest struggles is in actually dismantling cultural preference in my life. I mean, man, when I tell you that the Lord will show you your sins. I've just stopped asking. I'm saying, God, just forgive me and just, you know, work it out. I don't need that mirror. I don't need that mirror right now. It's like when you know you need to lose them pounds and you just stop weighing yourself. I just know I got to work out. Uh -huh. I'm not going to weigh myself anymore. I'm not going to check in. I'm just going to keep working out because it's very painful to almost question whether or not you're in this for the right reasons instead of being reminded that the Lord, if you continue to seek him, then all the Holy Spirit's going to do is guide you, sanctify you, and discipline you. He's going to continue to do that. And so remembering, struggling to make time to seek God, to make time to remember that my choice to become a wife, my I didn't choose to become a mother, but the Lord gave me two children. Mm -hmm. I said, Lord, I'm, I've got too much to do. I don't need no kids. And God was like, <laughs> okay, you're going to get pregnant. You're going to have a baby. Oh, I'm sorry. You're going to get pregnant again uh -huh. in seminary. The choices that God has made for me are actually the things that I wouldn't trade. Bringing my husband into my life, giving me children in moments that I thought, oh, I'm trying to work for you. 
And the Lord said, the best way sometimes for us to work for him is to be given the things that remind us of the very humanity that we're trying to dignify. I cannot march without picturing my baby's faces in my mind. Um, My son actually had his first trauma um, experience. He relived the trauma of discovering the truth about growing up as a black male in the U.S. He's five. And he just began to scream out, um, what will happen? What What are we going to do? He screamed out a lot of questions that what we were tri- sitting. What triggered this? Man, we was reading a book about popcorn and, and spaceships. I don't even <laughs> Oh, my God. No. So it was, was just like, on his mind. And I really believe that he had never learned how to verbalize it. And out of nowhere, what do they call it? That cognitive shift happened just five years and five months. And then, boom, the shift occurred. And I looked in his eyes and I and I knew, first of all, I don't know very many children of color that don't go through that. And I knew this is this is why I have to stay in this work. But it's also why I have to mother my kids well. And I mother them by bringing them with me to trainings as much as I can. But I also mother them by holding them, by showing them that the Lord is loving and holding us. And it is a real struggle for me to have love for the people who wish us harm. Um, We've been under threat a few times, and it's a struggle for us. Like actual death threats? Mm -hmm. It's a real struggle for us to read these phrases that I preach. Love your enemies. I bless those who curse you. And I read that for, I preach on that phrase. And I say to people, Black Lives Matter is not your enemy. I go to white churches and I minister to them and I say, Black Lives Matter is not your enemy. And so if you are to love your enemy, how much more are you to love your neighbor? And then I go back and I'm like cussing people out in my prayers. Mm -hmm. So the Lord is actually showing me the struggle that gives me the humility to bear with those who are struggling, not only to love me, maybe they already love me, but they're struggling to sacrifice that huge piece of their own cultural comfort that would let us live in harmony together. It is not a small thing. And this is why I want your listeners to know, read, read the Beattie, read Dr. Ellis, read um, Drew Hart. Oh man, I love his book. Read Jim Wallace, read Lisa Sharon Hart. Recommend one book to start. I'm sorry, you said one? Recommend okay. seven books. Okay, good. Here we go. All right. Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> like, look. Uh-huh. Um, Ferguson and Faith by Leah Gunning Francis. That's the closest one you're going to get to a retelling of the movement from a Christian perspective. Disunity in Christ. That's my girl, Christina Cleveland. Oh, Lord. <laughs> oh, man. I love her. Uh-huh. Like, it's real. Um, <laughs> Roadmap to Reconciliation, Brenda Salter McNeil. The very good gospel look. That's so good. Lisa Sharon Harper, don't, don't sleep on that. Her colleague, actually, Jim Wallace, um, America's Original Sin, wrote that. And it's really good, especially if you're white. Now, black folk, listen to me now. Y'all, don't read that. Don't read that. It's just going to make you mad. <laughs> Why? Because he like, just gets real and he starts with history and okay. we we already okay, know. We already know. Ooh, yeah, that's a hard one for black folks to read. Um, but one that everybody needs to read is Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. His description of being a man, Harvard grad, African American, trying to start a law firm in Montgomery, Alabama, 
it's unmissable. It's unmissable. The other thing that I think people really need to sink into is um, Drew Hart's book about um, racism and what it is. Yeah. Soom Chan Ra, can't go wrong. You cannot go wrong. Yeah. Oh, prophetic lament. Oh, Lord, yeah. help us. It's so good, y'all. It is so good. Um, and then if you're a culture buff, like if you really want to I think you've dig, gone over seven at this point. Oh, no, I won't. No, no, no. I've got, yeah, that was eight. Nine. Okay, the ninth and final book <laughs> is for my culture buff. And that is Chang, my boy, Jeff Chang's Who We Be. It looks at Western culture, just the U.S., out West, how hip hop, fashion, television, everything became a place where blackness was fetishized, but never dignified. And that had a huge mark on the manner in which we police and create policy around people of color in the U.S. It's not Christian at all. Everything else I named is pretty much faith-based. Trouble I've seen, true heart. Trouble I've seen. Trouble I've seen. It's really little. Okay. And that's a, those are great places to start. I also recommend, if you forget all this, go to faithforjustice.com. We keep up with all of this so you mm-hmm. don't have to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you could get into a time machine, which I think they're working on it, so you could, it could actually... I can't wait. I don't, wanna, I don't know if I want to go back. You could go back in time okay. and talk to yourself I want to go forward in the past cool. okay. and tell her one thing. <laughs> what would it be? Oh, okay. Look, it's going to have to be three, but they're quick. One, love. You have, to, you have to find out what actual love is. And I don't mean the way that the U.S. and sometimes the church makes everything about romance or making sure you find a mate. We, we are really bad at teaching people what passionate non-erotic love is someone second truth telling stop with the games stop with the manipulating stop with the lies if we can begin to do truth telling on every level of our lives even like the tiniest bit i don't mean like tell your wife she looks ugly if she's ugly no 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 no. i mean actually discovering what is going on in yourself and in your community that's keeping you from being together so truth telling for the sake of unity I'll qualify. Third, man, humility is the only way. If if I am loving and I'm committed to truth and I'm proud about it, mm-hmm. what's the point of the other two? <laughs> right, right? right. So basically, I would attempt to impress upon myself 1 Corinthians 13, I guess. Um, we have to, have to do things from love with a spirit that desires truth for the sake of unity, always through the action of expressing humility from ourselves to the other for the sake of saying, I'm not trying to do this without you. I want to do truth telling, but I'm not trying to do this alone. And I think in any point in life where I was, if I could understand those three things, probably I'd be involved in this stuff a lot sooner than I had gotten involved. Um, And I can only hope maybe I'd be a better mom too. You've been listening to The Calling. Michelle Higgins is the Director of Worship and Outreach at South City Church in St. Louis. She's also the Director of Faith for Justice at faithforjustice.com. By the way, make sure you check out Quick to Listen this week. I'm actually guest hosting on that episode. It's a really fascinating episode about Thanksgiving and the Native American relationship with the Christian church. It was a really good discussion. Um, Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps us a lot. The Calling is produced by Cray Allred. Theme music by Lee Rosevere, used under Creative Commons 4.0. See you next week.